Well, good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night service. Thanks, Ben. Um, first, can I invite our ushers to, to come forward? And uh, we're going to take our, our weekly tithes and offering. Um, th thank you for being faithful to the, really the command to be a steward of all that you have. And that's, that's certainly not just your possessions, but it, it certainly does involve that. So thanks, thanks for your faithfulness in giving. Um, ushers, you, you can go ahead and pass those. Um, real quickly, if I can draw your attention to the, the bulletin that, that you picked up on your way in. On uh, March 10th in the evening, we, we have our annual missions banquet uh, coming up here. And tickets are on sale now, and I, I think they're going pretty fast. I, I, I was talking to uh, Pastor Mark Orphan here this last week, and he was saying that they're, they're going, I, they're only like two bucks each, so it's a pretty minimal cost. Um, but it's a, it's a fantastic night that something that is a core value here at Timberline Church or a strategy purpose is, is reaching out to our world in, in really tangible ways with no strings attached. So this is a night where we're going to celebrate, look back at the whole year of where we've been in both local outreach here as, as well as globally. So grab those, um, pick one of those uh, tickets up for yourself um, this weekend, I think that they're going to be in the mall. You can certainly get them in the office uh, during the week as well. Um, anyone notice that uh, when you open your Bible, the very first story describes a uh, kind of a desolate landscape, right? It, it's, it, it pictures this world of void, without form, and um, there's, there's land, and there's a stream of water, we're told, to water the ground, but there's no plants, there are no trees, there's no herbs. Um, but then God does something really interesting. He plants a garden. He calls it Eden. The, the word means delight. And um, maybe the very first role that we could say that God takes in this book as, as, as we open up this story is that of a gardener. And, um, and there's this tree this really unique, interesting tree that's spoken about in this first gardening story, and it's called the tree of life. Uh, but because Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, uh, they're exiled, both from the garden and, and from any access to this tree of life. And, um, and this tree is hidden by God, we're told, the gardener, and, and it kind of begins to almost fade from people's minds as the generations go by and are born, and by the end of the story, book of Revelation, we see God returning to this role of gardener, if you remember. In Revelation, in the description of the new heavens and the new earth, it, it paints a picture of the city, and it's described as having a river of water of life, and on each side of the river, this tree resurfaces again, we're told, and it says, is the tree of life providing fruit for the feeding and the healing of all the uh, nations, Revelation 22. So almost bookmarked, uh, bookended, I should say, in this story are these, this, this tree, the tree of life. And while the first garden story ends badly, um, and as the hope for the, the constant gardener to replant, to rebuild, to restore um, what was lost, creation lost is going to be creation restored, we're told. Um, throughout the story of the Bible, God uses this picture of a, of a tree. He keeps coming back to this. There's something significant about it in this story. 
when he speaks of both his purposes, his kingdom, what his actions, what he's doing in the world, as well as even Israel and whom she, uh, who she is to be. So this tree remains a constant picture. And throughout scripture, when, when Israel rebels against God, that God describes her, uh, for instance, like in uh, Isaiah chapter 27, uh, he describes Israel as like a dead tree whose branches are dying and they're, they're, they're brittle. He describes them like breaking off, falling to the ground. If you remember John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the, he's the predecessor. He is preparing the way for the long-awaited uh, Messiah, Jesus. And his message is one of repentance, right? But think of, so this is his whole message. Everything's about repentance. But remember why he says, why repent? He says, repent because the axe is already at the root of the tree. And any, fr any uh, tree which does not produce the fruit of repentance, he says it'll be chopped down, it'll be thrown into the fires. He's, he's drawing up these images of, of this theme running through scripture of this tree. Further, when Jesus oftentimes speaks about living an authentic life in this, his rule, what he calls his kingdom, um, he reminds his readers, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree, bad fruit in Matthew 7. In fact, the very clearest way when Jesus comes to the, the end of his life, this is kind of the, the biggest uh, uh, statement or action of his that really pushes himself to the cross by his hearers, when when he wants to most clearly explain that he is passing final judgment on the temple. Pastor Rob talked about that a little bit this last week. Remember the image that he used? He went and found a tree, a fig tree, and he cursed it. And it was this symbolic act of saying, just like what you were intended to be, it didn't happen, and so I'm ending it. I'm taking life away from this tree, and it, may, it will never grow again. It will never produce fruit again. Even in Revelation 2.7, we're told that to all who are victorious, in context that means everyone who has clung to Christ with, with everything and said, you are my all, put their full hope in Christ, we're told, Revelation 2.7, Jesus says these words, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Okay? With all that in mind, I want us to look at where we're going tonight in our text. We're spending this week and next week in a, a short uh, series on the book of Psalms. We just, we just walked through Psalm 23, what we call the Shepherd King Psalm. And we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1 tonight. If you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm chapter 1. And there's only six verses. It's very short. There are only six verses in Psalm 23 as well. And uh, next week, Pastor Dick Foth is going to be speaking, talking about Psalm 139. And then we're going to get into an Easter series here for about four weeks leading up to Easter in our uh, Lenten schedule. So with all that in mind about this tree, read with me. If you listen to these words, Psalm chapter 1, we read this. Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but who but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. And here's the picture. They are like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Verse 4, not so the wicked. 
they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment or in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will be destroyed. Do you see what's being said here? Now, think about this for just a second. Look, look at the promise being made in this text. The psalmist is saying, you can be this tree. You can be like this. Verse 1 uses the word blessed. Now, it's not blessed in the sense of like, uh, you know, giving a blessing on someone. In this context, it's blessed like this. It's almost more of a happiness. It's like the person will feel subjectively in a state of, I feel blessed. I feel blessed by God. I am pleased. I am happy. Um, you can be, as in verse 3, deeply rooted into God such that no matter what comes, uh, despair does not come in your life. Um, someone, someone talks bad about you. Someone, someone trashes your reputation. You lose your job. Uh, maybe you just get passed up in that position that you were longing for, that you spent a lot of time preparing for. All of the things that come in our life, this passage is telling us that there's this stability deep down somewhere in this whole root system picture that will allow you to be completely unmoved at your deepest level, even if you're shaken, even if you're mourning, even if you're sad, you don't reach despair, an absolute giving up. Okay, so how does that happen? Um, the text gives us the answer uh, for how this sort of life is actually possible. First thing we learn uh, from this is, is how our lives turn out um, to be the kind of people that we are either that unmovable, unshakable tree, even in the most difficult times, who has these roots that are deeply rooted down into the very heart of God, or that rootless uh, chaff, as it's called. Whoever we become in life, this is the first thing this passage teaches, that whoever we become in life, um, it is the result of choices that, that we have made. That is, every choice you and I make has a consequence for us, and has a consequence to us. Verse 1, um, he lays out the progression of this, of, of how we become certain kind of people. Look in verse 1. He writes, uh, blessed are those, and then it's kind of this three-step progression here, who do not uh, walk in step, or some translations say uh, uh, walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way uh, that sinners take, or sit in the company or the seat of mockers. Now, let me, let me write up on the board here something, because I think this is kind of a helpful progression to see. He's using a couple different words. He refers to the counsel, the way, and the seat. He says, this person who's like this tree, who has this ability to have this immovable, stable kind of existence in their life, regardless of what might come, he says, doesn't, doesn't do these three things. Um, there's the counsel of the wicked, which typically refers to thinking. And then secondly, he talks about the way of the wicked. These are the ones who are like the chaff. And that really has to do with behaving or our, our actions. And then, and then finally, he talks about the seat. And this is, this is more of a, uh, of a constant relational piece. This is the idea of belonging. 
So if you kind of see the progression here, he's painting a picture that the way we become certain kinds of people in our life happens as a result of, of a progression, a movement, and, and he starts with this place of, of um, thinking. Now, um, as a parent to young children, many of you have had kids, do have kids, or have nieces and nephews, you kind of know how, how this works. There's, there's this perennial issue, right, of like, who are my, who are my friends, who are my kids friends with? Right? Like, who, who are the people they're hanging out with? Because you're thinking, like, what are the influences in their lives? Um, and sometimes we don't even know who they're hanging out with, and we don't even ask questions until something's said, right? They do something, they have some attitude at the house, some, you know, some language comes out of their mouth, and you're just, like, you know, horrified. You're like, where did you hear that from? You know, you know who, who are you picking up on that from, right? Now, it's not that, you know, my kids don't, don't sin, but they have, you know, Cunningham-style sins, Right? And, and, you know, these are non-Cunningham-style sins, so I'm like, I'm shocked. You know, I'm not shocked at our own, of course, but I'm shocked at other people's that, that they've picked up on. Um, and see, it's this idea that, that thinking leads to behaving, which leads to belonging. Um, Viktor Frankl is, uh, is someone that you, you might have heard of before. Uh, I was introduced to a book that he wrote. He has this best-selling book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's a fantastic book. Um, and in this, uh, and by the way, Viktor Frankl, he's, he's an Austrian um, neurologist, uh, psychologist, therapist, and a survivor of the World War II uh, Holocaust. And he was in various uh, concentration camps. And he, uh, he talks about this idea as he's in this concentration camp thinking about the actions that have been taken by an evil country, these evil people, looking at how these, uh, you know, these gas chambers and these camps that have been built, these actions, which is more the behaving piece, and he says, what led to that? And he's asking all these questions, you know, what has caused it? Let me read, and it's a little bit of a long, it's like two paragraphs, but, but bear with me, because I think he does a great job making the connection between our thoughts, where we start there, and how that plays out in our life. So he writes this. If we present man with a concept of man, meaning if we teach about who we are, what our nature is, um, which is not true, this is in the thought, we may well corrupt him. When we present man as an automation of reflexes, as a mind machine, as a bundle of instincts, as a pawn of drives and reactions, as a mere product of instinct heredity, and environment. What he's meaning is we're a mere creature, no soul. When you teach this idea that there's nothing image of God in us, he says we feed the nihilism. Nihilism is a philosophy which said life's meaningless because we're just as significant as a cockroach. A cockroach's life isn't significant, so ours isn't significant. He says we just, we just feed this concept that we had of, of this kind of nihilism, life is meaningless. And then he makes this statement, he says, I became acquainted with the last stage of corruption in my second concentration camp, Auschwitz. And he finishes by saying this, the gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory, that's that thinking piece there, that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil, 
And he says, I am absolutely convinced, I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majdanek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry of defense or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. And what he's pointing out is that ideas that are on paper <laughs> have consequences in the real world that we take. Now, you might say, well, okay, yeah, sure, of course, but I mean, that's kind of extreme. That's an extreme case. Yes, it is. But it most clearly shows how ideas, attitudes that we foster, beliefs, cannot help but, but, but ooze out of us, come out of us in our actions, what we do in our lives. So who I am, my life, is little more than, than sort of the accumulation, the piling up of my decisions, my my actions, my beliefs, my responses, my attitudes. C.S. Lewis puts it so well. I love the way he puts it. He says, uh, every choice that I make leaves on uh, an indelible, that's meaning like a permanent, okay, immovable, leaves an indelible impression upon my soul. It's like a tiny little, it's like, it's like how a carving is made. It's a tiny little nick in my soul. And after incremental decision after decision, attitude after attitude over a lifetime. You extend that into the future, and I am just, my shape of my soul is no more than the accumulation of all those actions which left an indelible impression upon who I am. This is why someone in addiction uh, may not have the freedom to quit. And, and yet part of the recovery process for them is, is to recognize that it was largely their own choices which led them to a place where their will wasn't free. Their will was actually bound or restricted in some way. And this is what we see in Psalm 1. I am becoming, you are becoming, we learn in Psalm 1, a certain kind of person with every choice, each and every choice. So when I become a kind of person who is like uh, the tree, the deep roots, or, or like that, 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 that chaff that, you know, when a, when a farmer would do winnowing, they would throw up the corn and all the, all the chaff, everything that's light just blows away and what's heavy falls to the ground. Let's use that illustration. This teaches us that this isn't fatalism, okay? It's not fatalistic determinism. I have a role in who I become by the choices I am making. I'm taking incremental steps toward my end, whatever that end is. I'm, I, I'm allowing myself to be fashioned, to be formed with everything that I do and everything that I leave undone as well. Um, my, my role here at church, you know, like, like the phrase that I use when I talk about well, you know, what I do here, someone says, you know, what's your role? I, uh, I say I work with spiritual formation. Now, the reality is we all work with spiritual formation, but that's, you know, that's a word for like discipleship and, and that sort of thing. But spiritual formation, this idea that you can't not be formed, right? Every single one of us is, is being spiritually formed. It's a matter of what is forming me? What am I allowing to shape who I am? Starting with like just thoughts, ideas that I have, which then kind of express their ways in, in you know, beliefs and more entrenched attitudes and convictions, and then they look like actions, 
and then it's an actual lifestyle. It's belonging to a certain place. Um, that's why this promise in verse 3 is so important. Look at verse 3, the promise of, uh, of this rooted tree. He writes, They are like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Um, you can be so deeply rooted into the persons of God that, that you are unmovable, unshakable, this is saying. Now, now you might say, wait a minute. So is this, is this kind of telling me that um, the godly person who's rooted in God, life is great and they always prosper and everything goes awesome and nothing ever happens? No. <laughs> I wish, I wish that were the case. But no, this is not saying that. We have to remember that much of the rest of the book of Psalms are, are filled with psalms like called uh, psalms of lament, right? Which means sorrow, it means grief, it means mourning over this idea that life is not going my way. I have lost things that are dear to me. My, my heart feels crushed. I am, I'm disappointed, questioning God, sometimes angry at God. See, here's the key. Verse 3, if you look at, the author kind of tips his hat ever so slightly to this idea that you can't go down this road of, of saying, well, if I, just, if I serve God and I'm faithful to him and I'm rooted deeply, life is just going to be grand for me. Because he talks about seasons. He says, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Um, see, not every season is spring or autumn, is it? Uh, there's the scorching heat of summer. There's, there's the freezing uh, temperatures of, of winter, too. Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah kind of parallels this passage here. Jeremiah 17, 7. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. And listen to this. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Now, did you catch those pieces there? Because that, that explains the whole seasons thing a lot more in depth, doesn't it? Um, it does not fear when heat comes, it says. Uh, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It still bears fruit. There's still life deep down, even when things are hard. You might say, I like Psalm 1 better than this Jeremiah one, right? Um, it's still there. It's in both places, just not as blatant. But see, this tells us that there are seasons of heat and drought, even for the, even for the firmest tree, the one with the deepest roots. But the point is that it's in those times that, that the reality of the root system is more important than ever. Um, there's, a, there's a place in this uh, literature, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, wrote this you know, a fantasy um, original book that's kind of been broken up, The Three, The Lord of the Rings. And there, there's this place in the story, it's not in the movie, but it's in, it's in the books, where, where Gandalf, Gandalf is this wizard, he's the good guy in the story, and um, things are going awful. Everything's, everything's going bad. Everything's turning a direction that they didn't want it to go, they didn't think it would go. It looks like all hope is lost, not just for them, but for all creation. Everything's going in the toilet. And, and it looks like there's no hope. And there's this, there's this great statement in here. Um, Tolkien writes this. Uh, 
and, and Pippin is this little hobbit who's there with him, and it says, uh, in his face, Pippin saw, speaking of Gandalf, in his face, Pippin saw at first only care and sorrow, but as he looked, he perceived that under all, there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. Isn't that cool? Listen to that again. Under it all, under all the sorrow, all the weight of the reality of what he was dealing with, there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. See, Psalm 1 says, you can be that. You can be that tree that is planted next to the streams of water, and even when it goes dry, it can hit groundwater so deep below. In the toughest of times, again, when you are just treated poorly by someone, when someone betrays you in your life, um, when it looks like there's no good possible thing that could come out of a certain scenario, underneath it all, there can be a, a deep joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing where it's a gush forth. From your life. The New Testament equivalent to this, do you remember this parable? Jesus told this story. He says, there were two people and they built a home. Each built a home. And this guy chose to build a home foundation-wise. He used sand. And, and then there's this guy over here and he built a home and he found stone and he built it. And remember what he says, what happened next? He says, there's, there's rains and there's storms and there's wind and the guy on the sand, his his foundation's gone. The guy with the foundation of stone, it, it remains. Okay, so how do I develop those deep roots, right? Because that's a big question. That's a, that's a great picture. Okay, but is that realistic? Like, like, how do you do that? What does that look like? Well, the answer is in verse 2. It answers the question for us. Verse 2, we read, but he, it's speaking of the tree, the one who is in this place of deep rootedness in God, but he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his, meaning God's, law day and night. Okay, so two questions here. Um, what does he do and when does he do it? Um, first of all, it says meditates. He meditates. Now, one thing we need to really distinguish between, because there's a lot of writing out there on meditation. You go to a bookstore, you'll find Dozens of books that are, that are influenced from more of a uh, Eastern perspective on what meditation is. Um, Eastern meditation, when they use that word, it means emptying the mind. It means, it means uh, emptying all rational thought and reason, not thinking about anything, trying to um, almost stiltify the mind, stop all thought. Emptiness is the idea. That's totally different from Middle Eastern meditation or what we would call biblical meditation. Middle Eastern biblical meditation is the idea of filling the mind. It's thinking well, it's thinking critically, it's processing, it's chewing over something, chewing over it again, coming back to it, coming at it from a hundred different angles and not giving up. So it's, it's a totally different concept when we speak about what meditation is from a biblical, biblical perspective here. Now it says when. Um, in the passage it says he meditates on on the word of God, day and night. Well, you might say, okay, that just means all the time. Yeah, yeah, it does. But it carries with it this idea of multiplicity. Because see, I, I can fall into this place where I kind of, you know, like I do a quiet time in the morning maybe, and then I just go throughout my day, and I don't give God a thought, and I, I, you know, I'm not oriented to him at all, and that's just, I think that that's kind of it. And what this text is saying is that won't work, okay? A one-time feeding sort of thing. 
rather, it's this idea of how do, how do I live a life which is like constantly in the face of God? Like, what does that look like? Um, maybe the most famous, well-known, and worn-out passage in the Old Testament, at least for the Jewish mind, is Deuteronomy 6. It's their creed. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your heart. It says, impress them on your children. Now listen real carefully. See if you can see a parallel to what we just read in Psalm 1. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. It says, tie them as symbols on your uh, hands, bind them on your forehead, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your, on your gates. Do you see the connection there between Psalm 1 and this? This is the inverse. This is the positive side. Psalm 1, it's not just the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but, but they're actually integrating, practicing the presence of God in everything they do. All of life is, is lived in the recognition that I'm doing life in the very presence of this God. Um, he's right there with me, um, working for me, working through me, and he's forming you every single time in an action that, that, that you submit to him. He's forming you. Every time you refuse to cheat somebody at work when it would be really, really easy and no one would even know, he's forming you. When you, when you change a diaper at home, when you have patience to make a meal or uh, have patience to tie a child's uh, shoestring for the 19th time that day, right? he's forming you. When you refuse to say something negative about a person who has said something negative to you, when you ask for forgiveness for that person that, that, that you snapped at the other day, he's forming you. When you pay for the lunch of the person who isn't expecting it that you're with, um, you're submitting to him in all those acts, and he's forming who you are. See, meditation means that, that you have to regularly, through your day, at the lunch and changing the diapers and making meals and going to work and doing all these different things, bring your mind back to God into the very presence of God. Because, see, it's easy to have, you know, again, that quiet time once a day, and then you never reorient yourself to him any of the other moments as you go. So this speaks to the need, and we talked about this. Remember we talked about emotionally healthy spirituality, if you were here for that series? This speaks for the, the, the need of, of a rhythm of life. One of the most helpful things, I don't know if you guys remember this, if you picked one up, one of the most helpful things that, that I have used in my daily rhythm, trying to do that, working at that, is, is this whole rule of life. Remember, we typed up these little cards, and it was this, here's my rule of life, meaning a structure of life. Here's how I will live as it relates to prayer and rest, as it relates to relationships, as it relates to work and activity. Here's how I'm going to approach all those things. It's this rule or pattern of life that I have. Um, so question. Meditate on what? Verse 2 says, we, he meditates on the law of the Lord. Now, this is just a phrase meaning all of Scripture, okay? It's kind of a technical phrase, but, but it, it just means all of Scripture is what this person who is the tree meditates on. 
in the life of the Jewish people, as, as well as the church, this book that we've been spending the past six weeks on and we'll continue a few more weeks on has played kind of like the centerpiece role on the place of meditation as it relates to how, how God forms me in my life. Um, the reason this psalm, Psalm 1, comes first, uh, and if you notice, it's not a prayer. Okay, there's 150 psalms in this book, and the first two, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, aren't prayers at all. They're not even close. It's not, oh God, this, or oh that. There's, no, there's none of that. You know why? It's because Psalm 1 and 2 are, are, are laying out the instructions of how you can utilize this book in your spiritual formation. It's saying, now, as you approach it, this is the how-to. You don't get this down, you're going to, all of it's going to be for naught. And that's the role that this plays. So it kind of explains all the 148 other psalms that come after it. And there's an ancient practice that we simply cannot afford to neglect in our spiritual formation, and, and that is to, to practice being immersed into the psalms in our own life. Um, Jesus did this. As a Jew in his day, he, he, he cut his teeth on the psalms. Uh, he talked about it all the time. You know, in the, in the moment on the cross, one of his last moments, we'll be talking about that in a few weeks as we go through this uh, kind of an Easter series. He's quoting, he quotes Psalm 22. In fact, more than the only book that is quoted more in the New Testament by Jesus uh, than Psalms is Isaiah. It's the second most quoted book by him. He's constantly going back to that. The history of the church. Uh, many of you have heard of St. Saint, Saint Benedict. Uh, St. Benedict organized a, a monastery, which was a learning center, and he had, he had the Benedictine rule. And um, he set it up so that in the monasteries, monks would have to uh, read through or recite or hear all 150 psalms every single week. This was a part of it. It was so core. Uh, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer has, has kind of this daily rhythm or daily office where you go through all 150 psalms in a month's time. Uh, John Calvin, when, when he was reforming the church in Geneva after the, or during the Protestant Reformation that was going on, uh, he, made it, he made sure that all, all the people sang, so they took all 150 psalms and they put them to music because that's the way they are originally done. We don't know what the music was, but the, he, he, he put it to new music, and he made sure that all of his people went through the 150 psalms at least twice a year. So being immersed in the psalms ha has been this cornerstone in the people of God forever. So one last question, how? Um, how do I do that? Uh, you ever... I know we we're supposed to have snow tonight, you know, you know, which gets me thinking of cold weather. I, I, I'm done with cold weather. I was born in Colorado. I'm, I want to move to Phoenix, Arizona. You know, I just am done with it. But you ever, you know those days where it's like it's been cold, and if you, if you haven't gone out to your car for like days and days, and it's like freezing temperatures, maybe it's even been like a couple weeks, what happens when you go over and you try to start it up? Yeah, it doesn't turn over, right? It just won't do it. And see, oftentimes, we can approach prayer like that. We go into prayer, we go into what we want to be intimacy with God, and we're just cold. Nothing's there. It doesn't turn over. See, meditation is this idea of warming up to a place that I can enter into a relationship with God in prayer in these intimate moments where it, it works 
it, it happens. Um, Martin Luther, this is, I, I came across this a few years back. Martin Luther once wrote a, a, a letter. He had a, he had a barber, the guy who cut his hair. And um, the barber asked him one time, he said, Master Luther, like, how do, how do you pray? Because I don't, I'm struggling with it a lot. I'm struggling with intimacy with God. And, he, and so he, he wrote his barber, who's named Peter, back, he said, Master Peter, and he wrote a 40-page letter back. Can you imagine that? Um, and you can look this up online. It's online. And uh, like the first 38 pages, you can kind of skim through the good stuff is like the last two pages, right, which is always long books and long letters. But at the very end, he gets to this place where he says, um, he says, here's what I do. Anytime that I'm going to pray that I'm going to try to press in, before I do that, I do this thing called meditation. And he said, here's, here's what I do. I get, a, I get a passage of scripture. It doesn't matter, it could, you know, Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer, doesn't matter what it is. But he said, and I go through and I ask four questions of it. And this is what helps me get the car ready to start. First, he says, what, what does this teach me? Okay, what's being taught to me here? Second question he asked is, what does this tell me about God that I can praise? Um, third thing he says, what does this tell me about myself that I need to confess? And thirdly, what does this tell me about my needs? You know, you know so he would go to, you know, scripture, you know, let's say the, you know, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And he said he would stop at every word and do that. Our Father, you know, what does that mean? Well, let's see, what, you know, what does that teach me? It teaches me that it's not just me and I'm in a community. Um, you know, what does it tell me about God that I can, you know, praise or confess? Well, you know, I really don't pray enough and I certainly don't pray with others. Um, you know, what do I need? I need to be around others more. I need to enter into the community. And he would do this through a passage, he said, until his mind was so warmed up. His, he said it's like his mind would be pushed down into his heart and it would catch a blaze. And then he would enter into prayer, and he said, those are the times in my life where prayer is passionate, it's awesome, it's joyful. Things happen. It's like I, I get this connection with God in my life. And so he would use, he would use the phrase, or I mean, we could use as followers, is T-A-C-S, this idea of what does it teach me? What can I adore or praise about God? That's the A. What can I confess? And then S, supplication, what are my needs? And he said he would always do this before he goes into prayer, and when he didn't, he said it was just dead. It was just dry in his life. Um, here's the reality, though. The reality is I don't, I don't meditate upon the word of God enough as I should, and I certainly never do it perfectly, right? So how do, how do I do this? How do I let this be instruction to my life that doesn't just become a weight it doesn't just become like legalism, another thing to do, more activity, more, more weight on my life. Uh, Mark Twain tells this story of he said he had this recurring dream of this big, huge Bible being laid on his chest, and he like couldn't breathe, and he couldn't get off, and it just suffocated him. Um, and sometimes that's what this can feel like when we, we learn one more thing that, that I need to do to press in. So the question is, how do, how do I live where this doesn't become that, this doesn't become legalism, because meditating on the word of God, again, I can't do it. And the answer is that Jesus isn't just, he, he's not just a model for me. I need to see him as not just someone I need to model, because he did it perfectly. He meditated on the word of God perfectly. But he's not just my model, he's my savior. We, we were talking about trees earlier, this holy of the tree of life that was lost in creation, is the tree of life restored in Revelation. Um, 
But there's one tree that we haven't mentioned yet. And there's a tree that I would suggest makes that final tree possible because there's a promise that we will share in that. Jesus says, I will let them eat from the tree of life in Revelation 2. But the only thing that makes that possible is another tree that we haven't talked about. Galatians chapter 3 says, quoting the Old Testament, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Where's Jesus? Jesus lived the perfect life. He meditated on scripture perfectly. He, he, he had deep roots, empowered by the Holy Spirit for every act, lived in perfect obedience to the Father for me and for you. And he exchanges his life for mine, and he takes the punishment that I deserve on that tree so I can have the final tree, the tree of life. And here's what I'd like us to do. Every week we take communion. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward, and we're going to pass it out. And, and what I love about the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms ends with this phrase and this idea. The very last psalm, Psalm 150, says, bless the Lord, 